Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do this morning. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today, just so you guys know about that. And um, as always, when we do these times of the Lord's Supper as a community and a family of God, we just encourage you as uh, parents to, to uh, shepherd your family well through the Lord's Supper. We believe it's a believer's Lord's Supper here. And as, even if some of the kids were dismissed to children's church, you want to go back and, and bring them in towards the end of the service, that's fine as well. As you guys are turning to Galatians chapter 4, let me pray this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, who you are, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you for your mercy that is new every morning. Um, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as a church family and, and study your word and sing together and fellowship with one another. I pray that this time that we have this morning will refresh our souls, that will give us rest, uh, that will recharge us for the week that is ahead of us. Lord, we pray for wisdom and guidance that only you can provide. I pray that the truth of your word would uh, ring true this morning, that anything that is uh, misspoken or, or not true to your word, if it's false, Lord, please identify those things and deal with them. Lord, we pray that a Tulsa Bible Church would be a, a church that, just like the book of Galatians, is centered on Christ and the gospel. And our community here would be one that radiates with love and truth of Jesus Christ because of what you've done for us. Uh, we ask you to guide us as we look into your word this morning, and, and we ask it through your son Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, was there a, a certain age in your life when mom and dad came to you and said, son, daughter, this is the day that you are now officially no longer a child, but you are an adult in our family? Was there, was there some moment, was there an occasion, maybe an event that you went through in life where somebody, at least somebody in your family took you to the side and said, Daniel, today is the day that you become a man? Um, for most of us, some of us, for the ladies in the group, maybe it's the, it's the day when mom or, or a family member came alongside and, and said, okay, it's okay to wear makeup now. You're a big girl and you are officially a woman. For, for Brandy, I know there was a day that she remembers that she got to go to school or to church for the very first time with just a little bit of a high heel that morning. And it wasn't a real high one, but it was just a really short little heel. And that was the day that she remembers, hey, it's, it's time to, to enter into this thing, uh, being a full-fledged, responsible adult. For most of us, we just go by the government. 16 years old, I can drive. And so that makes me a man. And nobody can tell me because I drive a Dodge Stratus that I'm going to be a man, right? All that's pretty, pretty boring though, and, uh, and I want to give you some really great examples of, of rites of passage, definitive moments for people groups that I found that have amazing events, these turn-of-the-page moments when you are now officially 
a son or a daughter with the full-fledged rights of a son or a daughter. In Papua New Guinea, there's a tribe called the Matusa tribe, and they believe that a boy will never find his true strength or vitality until his body is cleansed of all his boyish tendencies. And so to help him find their strength and vitality and to be a warrior in this tribe, the boys are forced to swallow two wooden pikes. They're shoved down their throat until they throw them up and they come out their nostrils. And then just to make sure that their blood is cleansed of all of their past life when they were just real little boys, they stab their tongue until blood is, is officially cleansed. That's their rite of passage. Anybody takers want to institute this one again? In the Brazilian Amazon, boys become men after they survive something called the bullet glove. What's the bullet glove? I'm glad you asked. There's a tribe in the Brazilian Amazon that, that puts a, a many bullet ants in a glove, and they make their children put these gloves on. It is the most painful bite of any insect, I'm told, in the entire earth. And the boys have to put on the glove for 10 minutes, they dance. And if they make any uncouth gestures of pain or discomfort, they gotta do it all over again. And if you can survive the bullet glove, you can be a man. I'm told that your body becomes paralyzed with throbbing pain for at least 24 hours after one sting from a bullet ant. A rite of passage. Just about every, every culture has something they go to. An event, uh, maybe it was a hunting trip with your dad and you killed your first deer. Maybe it was something that you did when you finally left the house for the first time. I don't know what it was, but almost every culture has something that they can go to where they can definitively say, today was the day that I stopped being a boy or a girl and I became a man. And for the Christian, it's the same. In the Christian family, all of us have a rite of passage. I want to read about it this morning in Galatians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, look down at verse 1. I'll read this passage. Galatians 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you, if you highlight or underline in your Bible, that phrase, adoption as sons, is such a key phrase. I encourage you to highlight that. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back against the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid that I might have labored over you in vain. Jeb Packer, in his classic Knowing God, wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, 
Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Packer says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. How much do you make of the thought of being in the family of God and being able to call the almighty, all-holy God father? How has your life been impacted by the truth of your spiritual adoption into God's family? Number one this morning and, and number one in your outline the real, real problem. There's a real problem that's addressed in Galatians 4. We're gonna bounce around and talk about it. Do you ever wonder why people do what they do in life? Ever thought to yourself, why is that person the way that he is? Or why did that thing happen the way that it happened? Regardless if you're liberal or or if you're conservative, everybody universally, we all understand that there's a, a right and a wrong way to treat people in a society. There's a healthy way for a society or a culture to function. We all know that there is a right way. We all know the chaos, the brokenness that ensues when we don't experience and when we don't have that functioning in our world. But we still keep struggling and we still keep fighting. Why? Why is it this way? Why do people do the things that they do? Cornelius Plantinga asks it this way. Why does sin ricochet down the generations? And why does history echo? What accounts for the fact that combatant ethnic groups and fueling clans lock themselves into round after round of hostilities that neither mend nor end? Where do the patterns of dysfunction in family systems come from, and why are they so miserably hard to fix? Again, why do people do the things that they do? My favorite, favorite pastor says this. He says, sin is a suicidal power that works against its very own power. Sin is a suicidal power that works against itself. Sin is something that that kills by multiplying. It grows with death. If you want to, uh, if you are sinning with your mind, for instance, over time you will find that your mindset and your pattern of thinking becomes more and more debased as time progresses and your, your mind begins to get warped into deeper and deeper sinful patterns. If you sin with your heart, If you sin with your emotions, over time you'll find that your emotions shrivel up. Uh, They get more difficult to to grasp, more difficult to to understand and even to control. If you sin with your will, you will find that your willpower is just weakened. And it becomes next to nothing as to what it used to be. Sin Sin is not just an action. Sin is a power. And it leaves you powerless, which is one way of saying that this, saying this. Sin is slavery. And one of the images that Paul uses for sin in in Galatians chapter four that is stronger and, and teaches us more than anything else this morning is this idea, this concept, that when you are apart from Christ, you are enslaved to sin. Listen to John 6, verse 34. Everyone who practices sin, John writes, is a slave to sin. And so why do people do what they do? Here's what Augustine said. Our core problem is that the human heart, ignoring God, turns in on itself. It tries to lift itself, it wants to please itself, and it ends up debasing itself. Inquiring into the motives, the causes, and the desires of our sin will take us back again and again to the intractable human heart. 
that apart from Christ is always wandering, and it always desires things that are apart from God's will. Now listen, Paul starts with an example from, from uh, family, from earthly family. In essence, he says, as he begins Galatians chapter four, in terms of a family inheritance, in terms of the rights of an inheritance, a child is no different than a slave. But once they became a full-fledged son or daughter in the family, once they come of age, they are given the full rights to the inheritance. But notice what Paul is saying with this strategy as he opens up Galatians chapter four. Why do people do what they do? Paul will say emphatically over and over again that apart from Christ, we are enslaved and we are enslaved to sin. Uh, What specifically does he point out that we are enslaved to in this section in Galatians? What are we enslaved to? First, verse three, skip down. The same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And you've got, you've got three choices for what that phrase means, the elementary principles of the world. Number one, it could refer to the earthly substance of the world. Um, water, air, uh, fire, perhaps. The physical elements that make up the world. Like we'd be enslaved to physical elements. There's aspects of it uh, people argue for you can dive into. Number two, it could mean the fundamental elements of matter that we might associate with science, perhaps, or even art. These are the the principles, the philosophies, the rules that we live by subconsciously. We don't even know that they exist sometimes. The third thing he might be referring to with the elementary principles of the world are, are spiritual forces, darkness, the forces of evil in the heavenly places. As John would say, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Maybe that is what he's referring to. We, we can't be certain of those three things. We don't know exactly what the Apostle Paul is referring to here. Maybe it's all three. But at the end of the day, he says we are enslaved, apart from Christ, to these elementary principles that exist in the world. And it gets worse from there. Keep on going down. Paul continues to ask this vital question, why do people do what they do? Skip down and look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Not only are humans enslaved to sin, but we are idolaters. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4 says that idols are not genuine. And behind idols are are demonic powers, again, spiritual forces. Although not truly gods, idols do have power. They exist, and they exercise their power in this world functioning to keep people in the slavery that they came in and were born into this world with. Just because you don't bow down to an idol, just because you don't pray to an idol, just because you don't own an idol doesn't mean that you are not enslaved to an idol. Idols can be idols of the heart. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We mass produce idols. We serve something created rather than the creator. And that is the core of our problem. One of my favorite theologians, Bob Dylan, said it very eloquently. Everybody has to serve somebody. You gotta serve somebody. It's not a question of if you serve or if you don't serve. The question is who or what do you worship and serve on a functional daily basis? Who has the functional allegiance over your heart? Apart from Christ, people serve dead idols instead of the living God. And I need to point out something very significant in the very next verse. Verse nine, 
But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, again, elementary principles of the world? But listen to this, this phrase, whose slaves you want to be. You desire to be once more. Paul takes slavery down another level. Sinful actions are not only the manifestation of slavery, but also sinful desire, sinful wants. Listen, the next time you find yourself angry about something, fearful about something, the next time you, you realize that um, you are functioning in an unhealthy relationship because of the words that you are saying or your actions or your feelings, maybe you become embittered against another person, what, ask yourself this question, what do I desire from this situation? What am I craving? What is the thing I want so badly that I'm convinced that if I have it, it's going to make me happy through this particular situation? That's your prison. That's your slave master. That's the thing that's taking you away from God and from him having first place in your life. Jonathan Edwards uh, put it this way. He said, sin turns the heart into a fire. And just as there has never been a fire that has said, enough fuel, I am fine now, there's never been a sinful heart that has said, I have had enough success, I have had enough love, I have had enough approval, I have had enough comfort. The things we want the most are the things that enslave us the most, especially when those wants and desires are something other than God. That's our problem at the root of what's wrong in the world and at the root of why people do the things they do is this answer. We are enslaved to sin apart from Christ. And the imagery couldn't be stronger from the Apostle Paul. Number two, the real problem, we're enslaved to sin. Number two is the only solution. Uh, what we said so far is that sin is slavery. And by definition, to be a slave or to be enslaved to something means that you are powerless to do anything about it. You might, need to, you might know that you need to stop drinking so much, but you might not have the power to stop drinking in yourself because you are enslaved to the addiction. Uh, Martin Luther picked up on what Augustine said about sin and his definition of it. He proposed that the human heart, and he used a Latin phrase, sounds something like this, incurvitus inse. And it means that the human heart is actually curved in against itself. The heart functions against itself instead of functioning for itself in a positive way. The heart curved in is an ex excellent depiction of what slavery of sin really means. What Luther and what the Apostle Paul would say, especially right here in Galatians 4, is not only are we sold as slaves into sin, but also every attempt of our own to get out of that slavery only leads to a deeper slavery. It only leads to more enslavement, more prison, more chains, stronger of a division between you and God. It only curves our heart inward and makes us, and makes our bondage more unbearable. We are completely helpless to break out of prison. We are completely helpless to liberate ourselves. At the core of the gospel is the understanding of who you are in yourself apart from Christ. And who you are is unable to do anything about your sin situation apart from a liberator, apart from a redeemer outside of you. 
Look down at uh, verse 10. You observe days, months, and, and seasons, and years. These days likely refer to the Jewish observance of, of keeping the Sabbath. And not only keeping the Sabbath once a week, but these, this uh, litany of words that Paul is using in verse 10 refer to the whole Jewish calendar in itself. Uh, you've got Sabbath weeks, you've got Sabbath years, you've got years of jubilee, you've got festivals. The Jews came to, to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate Sabbaths with the people of God in Jerusalem. Israel was an agrarian society. Their entire calendar was built around Sabbaths. It was actually, it was built around the harvest in the new year. Uh, remember when Moses initiated Passover, he, he began a new month for Israel. The harvest kicked everything off. But keeping the Sabbath and doing all of these things, trying harder to keep the law, to earn some kind of status with God, only gets you deeper and deeper into a slavery that you have always held in the first place from the second that you came into the world. All attempts to be a better person through the law, to dig down deep, only lead to a deeper and a stronger slavery. The only way that Israel can be liberated the only way that believers can be liberated from sin and from the law is if someone comes to liberate them and to redeem them. Look at verse four. But, note the contrast. When the fullness of time had come, God, but God. We read about that statement in Ephesians chapter two as well. It happens right here again in Galatians four, verse four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Although sold into slavery and powerless to do anything about it, powerless to redeem, powerless to liberate yourself, God intervened, but God. He had a different plan for his people, one saturated with grace and freedom, liberation and redemption. The fullness of time here, this phrase, the fullness of time, emphasizes the realization of God's promises. His plan from the very beginning was to unite all things under Christ. Christ was a fulfillment. Now that Christ has come, the fulfillment of the ages has come. Listen to Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus came to Galilee preaching, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. When the time was fulfilled, God sent his son. Notice the action that launches this redemptive purpose of God. God sent forth. Who's the subject? What's the action? Who's performing the action? God didn't send a, a bigger or a stronger government to fix our problems. Why? Because that can't fix a heart problem. God didn't send a new philosophy. He didn't send a new teaching to fix our sin problem. Why? Because the problem wasn't ideology. It wasn't a philosophical issue that enslaved our hearts. He didn't even send uh, more technology or more health care, although many of us believe that that's going to save us from the day of our death. In order to redeem human hearts, God sent a redeemer. He sent a person, Jesus Christ. And it's important to know that uh, he wasn't sending his son, which was not there beforehand. And God sending his son he was sending the pre-existent Christ. His action of sending didn't mean that, that the Son of God wasn't there before that. The Son of God was always there, eternally existing. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was already the Son when God sent him. God's sonship is not only functional, but his sonship is ontological. It goes back to his very being and his, his existence from all eternity. 
While many think this phrase, born of a woman, would refer to the virgin birth, uh, you really can't say that with a ton of confidence. Yes, we know that Jesus was born of a virgin, and we know that that can be part of this verse, but not necessarily when you look at how the sentence is broken down. The most we can say with confidence, born of a, of a woman means this, Christ was 100% human. Not only was he 100% God, but he was 100% human, and because he was human, he had the ability and he was willing to be a redeemer of humans. Does anyone think about James chapter two? Even the demons believe and shudder. Jesus didn't come to redeem demons and angels. Jesus came to redeem humanity. And so that verse might be saying something a little bit different. Jesus came as a human so that he could save humans. And he redeemed us with his death on the cross. Jesus Christ was not just willing, he was able. He paid the price of our freedom and he did it all to redeem us, to set us free from the slavery of sin, from the chains and the imprisonment of sin. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus had to come when the law was still in effect for Israel. Because he perfectly kept the law, he could redeem those who can't keep the law. Because we are sinful human beings. The real problem, number one, is that we're enslaved to sin. The only solution is a redeemer. The only solution is one who is 100% human and 100% God. And it's in the fullness of time he came to redeem. Number three is the ultimate right. Now, my kids do uh, some really crazy things. I've got Kennedy, Ethan, and Henry. How many of them are in the service today? Henry, I see no Ethan today. It's good because I'm gonna talk about Ethan. Ethan and, and Henry, Patty, you know this. A lot, of, a lot of our folks in the office know this. My kids, they love to come up to the office and play basketball in the gym and, and say hello to dad if they're passing by. Sometimes they drop by a, a shake or a, or a coffee and it's, and it's awesome to see my kids. But, but my kids have this, this disease that is uh, inherent in them. And they think that uh, they're entitled and they own everything at the church because I'm the pastor. So my kids come in the office and they're running around and they're playing. And my office has this little doorway connection into Daniel Newberry's office, our family pastor here. And Ethan decides that he's going to come into my office. He, he sees the opening and he weasels his way right into Daniel's office. And he doesn't just go in there and look around and, and come right back out. No, Ethan makes himself at home in the office. He starts to take things off the shelf and put them on his desk. In fact, he's so at home in Daniel's office that he just pulls back the chair, puts his feet on the desk, and reclines like he owns the place. Right, Scott? You've, you've noticed this before, too. And so I'm thinking to myself, if Daniel comes back in the office and he sees that you've basically redecorated and now you own the place, this is not going to go up going to go over well. And, and so, lo and behold, Daniel walks in the office when he's sitting in the chair. And I'm, I'm just waiting to see what happens for the reaction. And I hear I, nothing from Daniel. All I hear is, is some words come out of my nine-year-old's mouth. He says this, what's up, noobs? <laughs> I 
Daniel looks over to Ethan. Who gave you the right to plant yourself in my office? It might have been, it might have been me that actually said that. <laughs> Once you look down at Galatians verse 5 here in chapter 4. There's a right that we have as children of God. And the truth and the richness of this theological right that the Apostle Paul explains is one of the deepest and the most profound, profoundly significant truths of the gospel. I'm going to talk as we end today a little bit about families and and broken families, and, and this is an aspect of the gospel. Our adoption into the family of God is one of the very strongest theological truths that we have and we can hold on to in our Christian life for truth and for significance. Verse 5 in Galatians 4 says, He came to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption. not as children, not as boys and girls, but adoption as sons, full rights to the inheritance. This truth is as deep as it is healing and significance, insignificant. Uh, New Testament scholars consider the, the theology of adoption, spiritual adoption, right alongside that of justification. It involved a legal process, whereas justification is a declaration of righteousness, to those who are guilty, to those who are wrong, this acquittal and adoption, it, it doesn't make a person a member of the judge's family. If, if you are justified by God, that doesn't mean that the judge brings you into his family. But adoption does say that. The theological truth of adoption is the fact that the Father, the one who judges you, declares you righteous also at the very same time coterminous with that pronunciation of acquittal in righteousness. He brings you into his family at the very same time. To be adopted into God's family means it it is an act of grace, logically following justification and conversion, by which God confers on forgiven sinners the status of sonship. When you are adopted into God's family, it is an act of the grace of God, logically following justification and conversion, by which God confers on forgiven sinners the status of of sonship. The New Testament word for adoption literally means to place as a son. It is found exactly five times in the New Testament. In Romans 9, verse 4, the sense of adoption is corporate. It refers to Israel's adoption into the chosen people, into God's chosen family. In Romans 8, verse 23, 23, excuse me, adoption is understood as the full redemption of our bodies at the second coming of Christ. The last three times that adoption is used in the New Testament, all times uh, specifically given by Paul, is the same sense it is used right here in Galatians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. The Father predestined believers to be adopted as sons into his family. Romans 8, 15, we did not receive a spirit of fear to go back into slavery again, but a spirit of Adoption. Galatians 4, verse 5, Christ redeemed those under the law to be adopted as fully sons of God. And by virtue of adoption into God's family, at least, at least seven things are true about those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Number one, we now bear a name and a new identity fully as children and sons of daughters 
in God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Number two, we experience the intimate indwelling of God's Spirit because we are adopted into his family. Number three, adoption assures us that we are recipients of God's love. What love has God bestowed on us? It's not that we first loved him, but that God first loved us and brought us into his family. Number four, as sons and daughters, believers are cared for specifically by God the Father in a very intimate and personal way. If God cares for the sparrows of the air that none of them fall without him knowing about it, how much more will he care for those who are his children? Number five, we all have the right and the privilege to boldly access the Father in Hebrews chapter two, verse four. Number six, we have a Father who loves us enough to discipline us when we go astray. Hebrews chapter 12, verses four through seven talks about the love of the Father who cares enough about us to discipline us and to bring us back into fellowship with him. Number seven, we are rightful heirs to the Father's eternal kingdom, Romans eight, verse 17. Seven truths about our adoption into God's family. Look at verse six. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our, our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you no, are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul returns to a theme that he started in, in Galatians chapter three, verse one, when he talks about this, with the presence of the spirit through the working of faith in the life of an individual. Just as God sent his son into the world, he also sends his spirit to those who trusted him. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into into a very special location, into our hearts. That's why we needed a redeemer. We needed a work done on our hearts that only a redeemer can do. That is the place that is wrong with all of us apart from God. He sent forth his spirit into all of our hearts hearts. With a new redeemed heart, a changed heart indicates a change of status, and there is a chain effect in these verses. We were slaves, we were sons, we are heirs to, and given full rights of sonship because of our relationship to the Father through Jesus. Most people are, I'm just going to say this really quickly, most people are inclined to, um, to conclude that one crying out, Abba, Father, that this is a, a very intimate uh, depiction of God that would have been used by a, a child. When you're making your first syllables, nobody says Mama first. Everybody says Dada first. And there's something to the Aramaic behind that. Uh, New Testament scholar James Barr wrote an article that, that has debunked that theory. Uh, it's called Abba Isn't Daddy. Okay, so just because um, mostly it's, it's attributed to another New Testament scholar who came out, his name is Jeremias, and he, he said that Abba had to do with this, this personal childlike cry to the Father. Uh, not necessarily. Abba could have been a very formal way of addressing God by anybody in this context, whether a children or a full-fledged adult. So just be careful with that. As we close in Galatians 4, um, like I said, there's been, you get, I'm confident, there are several people in this room this morning who have had dysfunctional families growing up. 
I'm also confident that there's, there's several people in this room that have broken relationships with fathers, uh, things that haven't been mended over time. And I don't know specifically what your situation is. Um, you don't know what my situation was when I grew up either. But all of us to some level have, have experienced dysfunction in our families. Children who feel a closeness to their fathers, you don't have to dig very deep to see the statistics on this kind of stuff. Uh, children who feel closest to their fathers are twice as likely as those who do not enter college, twice as likely to find a stable job and employment uh, after they graduate high school. They're 75% less likely to have a teen birth if you have a, a stable, good relationship with dad in the home. 80% less likely to spend time in jail. 80% if you have a healthy relationship with your dad as a child. And you're half as likely to experience multiple depression symptoms throughout your life. Uh, wounds from childhood go deep for all of us. Many of them are associated with a parent, maybe a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle. Because of the gospel of Jesus, we are adopted into a completely different family. No matter what your situation was, no matter the relationship that you have had with a parent, all of us as believers in Christ can fully say with confidence, we have a father who loves us. We have a family of God in a community who loves us because of the Father's love that unites all of us together. No matter what situation you've been through, no matter the heartache that you have experienced, psychologists today are, are tracing back memories from childhood. If there is a mental disorder evident here, I want to find something, just one thing back in their childhood memories that they need to get off their chests in order to move forward in a healing manner, right? You guys have heard this before? We all have a heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us, who forgives, redeems, and starts the family line all over, no matter what you've been through. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a Father who will never leave us nor forsake us. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews says that the Lord, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. When Jesus gave us the great commission to go and to make disciples of the world, he said, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. There is never a time that we will be apart from a healthy, functioning, spiritual family because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so for anybody who's out here today who has had dysfunction and experienced that in your family, realize that all of that can be redeemed. That all of that has been redeemed by Jesus on the cross in his great love for us. 
All of us have a common salvation and a common Father who loves us down to the tiny, the most detailed minutia. He knows us better than we know ourselves, And he has adopted us into our family. Right? He has looked at our pathetic, sinful, dysfunctional lives, and he has said to each and every one of us, Brad, I want you in my family. Phil, I don't care what you've done. All the heartache and all the hurts in your past, I want you in my family. Number two, because of the gospel, we don't have to work and we don't have to earn a father's approval. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can lay all of that down. Nobody in this room will be able to look at their life at the end and say, God, look what I've done for you. Look at how great I've been in serving you and being obedient to you. All of us can never earn or deserve the Father's love. He gives it as a gift of his grace. John 8, 35 and 36, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. And if the son has set you free, what? You are free indeed. You are eternally loved, eternally valued, eternally significant, and eternally sealed in the family of God because of what Christ has done on the cross. We're going to uh, take the Lord's Supper in, in just a second here, and deacons, elders, if you guys are serving, and I want to encourage you to go back there now, and music guys, you guys can come up uh, and get ready to, pray, to play as uh, elements are being passed. Before we begin to partake, and I love these times when we can just look at the truth of the gospel and talk about our family in Christ because of the cross and what he has done for us. Um, we actually have uh, two people in our church family that have been on staff. Um, They're transitioning off staff this summer. I uh, wanted to make a quick announcement. Maddie and Casey Boltinghouse, Maddie's our children's director, she's gonna go back to teaching this fall. Some of you guys as members uh, got the newsletter on that this week. And Daniel has, has been a family member here at TBC, always will be a family member in the uh, eternal family of God that we love and um, have that common connection with him. He's transitioning to be a youth pastor in Arizona uh, so, so his wife can be closer to their family and um, they know it's gonna be a, a great step for their family as well. But I love these times that we can come together for and with the Lord's Supper to celebrate as a family of God. And, and we're gonna read some verses about that in Romans chapter eight. Uh, but before we get there, just want to remind you uh, as the deacons come by, elders, and serve the Lord's Supper. They're gonna come with a tray in front of you. Uh, there's, you'll find two, two cups stacked, one on top of the other. And the bottom cup is the bread and the top cup is the juice. Make sure you grab two cups as they're passing before you. Um, and hold on to those, we'll partake together. So as I pray, why don't you guys come on up and we'll start to pass these elements out. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for the truth of the gospel. I thank you for the, the depth and the richness that 
uh, because of Christ and his death on the cross and, and simply believing that he died for us and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, we have been adopted into your family. I pray that 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 truth and that unity that binds us together through the power of your Holy Spirit would weigh heavily on us, would take us from this place and create in us um, a desire and a passion for, for a community of faith that is a family, that we look upon each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, desperately needing one another, praying for one another, and caring for one another. We thank you that, that you are a father who will never leave us nor forsake us, that you love us and you care for us unconditionally because of Jesus. And the cross being the, the example, the demonstration of just how far you are willing to go to preserve a family made in your image. Lord, I pray that the truths of being adopted into your family would, would remain with us in a way that will change our hearts and change our lives on a daily basis. As we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, I, I pray that uh, we would do so with, with an eye toward the unity that we have in Christ. We ask that you would bless this time as, as we are about to partake. It's in the name of your Son that we pray this morning. Amen.